Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello everyone, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. Today I'm speaking with Kate Braithwaite about her debut novel, Charlatan. Here we are a long way from last month's destination of post-World War I Chicago. The charlatan in question, Catherine Montvoisin, plied her trade under Louis XIV of France, known as the Sun King. The cover of this deliciously rich and gritty novel portrays his emblem, and he is everywhere in this story, as he was in reality the center of the main player's desires. This statement is true even at the opening, although the connection does not become obvious right away. Paris, 1676. The naked woman lay on her back on a thin mattress supported by two sturdy wooden chairs. Her knees were bent, bare legs left to dangle toward the uneven stone floor, and her hands, fingers intertwined, lay on her ribcage just beneath her breasts. A roll of black cloth covered her face and hair, but Lesage had made sure she would be able to breathe. He imagined her hearing must be dulled. To the woman, the recitation would sound like the faraway echo of disembodied calls on a thick, foggy night, words indistinct, meaning unclear. The light in the room was poor, and a persistent draft wheedled its way through the locked door and the black drapes covering the windows. It teased the candles Lesage had watched Catherine arrange in a wide circle around the figure on the mattress. Shadows were cast and recast, first over the woman's pale flesh, and then up across the coarse stone walls. He stood in one gloomy corner and watched the faces of the others in the room as the flames bent and curved. Only the man leaning over the woman at the center was quite clearly picked out in orange and yellow. Abbe Guiberg had a short, bulky body and preternaturally wide shoulders. Thin gray hair coursed down his back. His surplice and stole did not quite disguise his twisted leg and malformed hip. As he spoke, Guiberg's face tensed, growing fierce with concentration. Lestar studied the other man's fleshy features. Thick lips, flaring nostrils, heavy-hooded, bulging eyes, a high, fat forehead, and extravagant eyebrows a grotesque ugliness that, to his credit, Guiberg had always exploited. The damp made Lesage's fingers hurt. He resisted an urge to crack his knuckles as the priest raised his arms and closed his eyes. Guiberg delivered his practiced incantation in a surprisingly agreeable sing-song tone. And now, please join me in welcoming Kate Braithwaite. Hi, Kate. I look forward to chatting with you today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So I see from your bio that you were born and grew up in Edinburgh. Uh, My mother, too, was born in Edinburgh, so it's one of my favorite cities. When did you leave and where did you go when you left? Uh, Well, it is a beautiful city. I I love it very much. Um, I lived there and went to school there until I was 18. And then when I was 18, I went to college in England. And really, for the next maybe 20 years, I lived in England, various parts, moving around, working, getting married, having children. And then in 2008, as a family, we moved, in fact, to Canada for a couple of years. 
And uh, what brought you to my neighborhood? I should mention, for the sake of the listeners, that Kate and I live about 20 minutes away from each other. Uh, so there are lots of overlaps here. Yeah, there are. It's amazing. It is a small world. Um, so we moved to Canada on a two-year to comment with my husband's job. I had three young children at the time, so I wasn't working. And after maybe a year in Canada, he started saying, well, I have to go to Philadelphia a lot. And suddenly there was a, oh, maybe there's a job that I should be going for down there somewhere called Wilmington, which I'd never heard of. And very casually, we ended up moving here. Uh, we live in Kennett Square, which is a, a beautiful, in fact, area in the Brandywine Valley. And um, we find ourselves buying a house and our children entering the school system. And so here we are. So you have a lovely anecdote on your site about a guy chatting you up in a pub. I assume this is before you got to Toronto and asking what your talent was. Uh, can you share that story and then fill it in with how you got from there to writing fiction of your own? Sure. Um, so I think I was in my 20s, early 20s, uh, when that happened. And I was visiting a friend in London and we were in a pub in Chelsea with a crowd of people. And there was this guy there who was just one of those guys that thought he had all the lines and I remember he uh you know leant on the bar and said to me hey so what's your talent and uh I just felt oh my gosh I don't know and I remember thinking oh I should be able to say I can speak Mandarin or I play the piano or something and all I could come out with was uh, I read a lot and you know I did read a lot I studied English at university and uh, that was my main hobby, and, and my uh, it still is. So from reading a lot to writing, I think um, I always, I didn't want to be an author per se or want to be a writer. I just always thought that I would write a book. I always thought that I loved reading books and how I would love to make one of these things. And when the time came, I didn't know when that time was going to be or have any clear plan about it, but, you know, at some point, I would sit down and do it. And, it, it, you know, it took me a long time to find that point, but I'm, I'm very happy, obviously, that I did. Well, with three children, I would imagine it's hard to find the time. <laughs> yeah, I was, in fact, I was better, better focused once I had the children than before, strangely. But No, I think that's story. true. I think that's true. And, I mean, I started writing when my son was in elementary school. And, of course, school is a fantastic invention for mothers. But... Yeah, <laughs> But what what it really pays off is uh, after they leave home, you are accustomed to working with every spare minute. And so I think it really helps you stay focused and, and make the most out of your time. Yeah, that's right. When I, when I first started, I think I had two hours, a two-hour window, three days a week, when two of them were at school or preschool and the, my baby was asleep. And that was when I really knuckled down. Right. <laughs> so you took... Um, when you started uh, getting really interested in writing, you, you took courses while you were in Toronto, right? Yeah, I did. Yeah. I had, uh, I had written a draft of this book and sent it out before we moved to Canada. And I had had some agent interest and spoken to, you know, a big London agent on the phone. But there were things wrong with the book and I didn't really know what they were or how to tackle them. And when we moved to Canada, you know, I just there was an opportunity there because I was going to carry on not working um, to go and, and do their creative writing program. And it was immensely helpful to me, you know, just to focus my thoughts and understand writing as a craft and 
throw out writing and not hold on to things. And um, so it was very important to me. Uh, yes, I can really relate to that. I think it's very hard in the beginning to know. Um, I mean, you can sense or you can get feedback that says that things aren't right, but it's very hard to figure out how to fix it or even what it is that isn't really working. Yeah. So, so you said you had written a draft of this book. Were you always interested in historical fiction? I think I've I've always read historical fiction, but I mean I've read a lot of different kinds of fiction. I really like I've read a lot of literary fiction. I've read a lot of classics. I've read a lot of crime fiction, um, but I've always loved historical fiction. I loved Georgette Hare books when I was a teenager. Um, I love Alias Grace by Margaret Atwood. Um, you know, it's, it's always been something that I've turned to, and I enjoy learning about something while I'm reading a story. So it was a kind of natural thing for me but really it was because I came across the affair of the poisons that that was why I decided to write this book all right great well that drove me right into the next question so how how did you find out about the affair of the poisons and and how did you decide to write a historical novel about it so uh, I had I'd had my first child my son and I stopped working which was a shock and I was um we lived in this lovely village in Suffolk at the time, and I would go out and push him around in his push chair, thinking, well, this is interesting. Uh, what am I doing? And so they had a second-hand bookshop, which had, you know, out on the street, there would be, like, on the pavement, there were boxes of books, and you could rifle through them. And I thought, well, what I need to do here is read something a bit more challenging than my normal fiction, and I should read some non-fiction. And I picked up this old copy of Nancy Mickford's book about Louis the Fourteenth, and I thought, well, I like history, and... Here's a book that costs me 20p or something like that, and I'm going to read it. And as I was reading it, there are maybe four or five pages in this book devoted to the affair of the poisons. And I've always kind of liked witches and mysteries and things like that. And suddenly here was a real life one where there were apparently these witch type people operating in Paris, even though all this sort of glory of beauty of Versailles was going on, there was this other world. And I, I was just fascinated and there wasn't enough information there. So I read more books about it and thought, I would, I would love to read a novel about this. And that, and that was when it all kind of came together that I'd always wanted to write a book and here was the story. So, so fill us in, please, on what's happening in the paragraphs that I read as part of my introduction. Uh, who is La Voisin and uh, what are she and her colleagues doing in that opening passage? So La Voisin is a, is a real character from history. Her name was Catherine. Uh, she um, was a fortune teller. She read hands. She cast horoscopes. She also ran a, a back, backyard, backstreet abortion business. And she made poisons and sold them to people who wanted to get rid of their husbands. So and another feature of her business was to hold a black mass where she would employ a priest, which is what we see in this scene, to carry out a Catholic mass, but in, not in a church, not on an altar, with a human altar, and to ask the devil for something for one of her clients. So she would kind of broker the deal between the client who wanted something, in this case, the love of the King of France, and uh, a priest who was prepared to um, operate in that fashion. So uh, there are four people who are mentioned in the introduction, and we'll get back to them uh, in a minute. But 
There are also a number of silent observers uh, to this scene. There is the client on whose behalf uh, uh, Catherine is holding the black mass, uh, and she's accompanied by another woman uh, whom uh, Lesage, who is the observer for these paragraphs, uh, describes as mistress and maid. We won't get into who they are um, just yet uh, because we don't want to give away spoilers from the book. But uh, the, another person who is there and not immediately acknowledged, although Lesage sees her later in the prologue, is uh, Marie Montvoisin. Who is, who is she and what is she doing there? So Marie is, is Catherine's daughter. And she, at the time of this scene, is about 16 years old. Um, she is a damaged girl growing up in the house with, with a mother who is heavily religious, but obviously operating you know, in, in a criminal fashion. And she has snuck in to watch what her mother's doing. She's obviously kind of attracted to this whole dark scene, but also repelled by it. She hates the, the other chap who's there watching, who is a self-described magician called Lesage. She hates her mother, but she's, you know, she's drawn to this scene. And she also, when she's revealed, is pregnant, which her mother doesn't know. And her mother's very angry when she discovers that Marie is present. Um, indeed, in general, they don't get along at all well. Um, what can you tell us about their personalities and their relationship? Uh, well, you know, they are both historical figures. They both lived and, and um, many of their actions are documented. So Catherine, coming down through history, was a, a very hard character, I think, um, very driven, very believing in herself and what she was doing, very, very successful at this, you know, criminal business that she ran. She had quite a lot of children um, who I think basically were bringing themselves up, Marie being one of them. And, you know, my thought with Marie was, you know, how, what is it like to grow up in that environment? How damaged are you? And she did then go on when she was also arrested to make some of the most outlandish claims that were, or most damaging claims that were made in the investigation of the affair of the poisons. And so my sort of principal thing was, what is it like to be the mother of that woman? You know, she's not a kind mother. She's not a caring mother. And, you know, there, there are much history between them, which gets revealed as the book goes on. So, um, this is one of the differences between 17th century France and 16th century Russia, where I've done, spent most of my sort of academic and fiction writing life. We rarely know what people are like, except sometimes by what they do. Are there actually sources that, that get into the personalities of um, Montvoisin and her daughter? Or do you have to... Is this your creation, in effect? You're, you're part of this story. Uh, there, there are records. There are records of um, the interrogations that went on in the Chateau de Vincennes. So there are, you know, name, like, like a dialogue, like reading a script. You can read what was, what was said by these people and how they reacted to other people. And um, there are quite a few secondary sources where people have researched their lives. So... There's, there's a, I, you know, have read as much as I can and tried to keep people's characters within what I read, but then obviously you fill you fill in the gaps and you make 
you make them into people that then become real on the page. So they're not, um, I'm sure they're not exactly like they were, but they should be believable within the known facts, if that makes sense. It does. I mean, that's sort of the fun part, really. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) So the last person that we meet in the prologue at the very end is uh, Nicolas Lareny. And at the moment when we meet him, he's snoring in his bed, but he's about to become an important force in the novel. Uh, starting on the next page. So you have this lovely line at the end of it where you say other people's business had a habit of becoming his. Um, why is that? And more specifically, what role does he play in your book? So Lorraine is, is the policeman. He's uh, he's the sort of grumpy, your grumpy investigator that you might meet in many you know more modern crime novels. He, um, again, is a real person who was the chief of police in Paris. He did a lot of great things. He introduced street lighting in Paris. He broke up a big ghetto area called the Cour de Miracle. Um, so he was a, a, a just and honest policeman. But when the first arrest happened, they began with the affair of the poison. It kind of opened up a huge can of worms that took over, really took over Lorraine's life, his assistant's life. And he had the very awkward job of gathering all this information that then implicated people very, very close to Louis the Fourteenth, and he had the job of relaying that to the king and to the king's advisors. And so he wasn't just, you know, a, a policeman; he was also a p- politically implicated in it, and had, you know, had a lot of questions that he had to deal with as it went on. You know, and the list of jobs people don't want—I'm sure having to explain to Louis XIV that some duke or marquis is possibly implicated, or marquis, I suppose, because they, a lot of the people who were implicated were women, yeah. <laughs> is uh, possibly accused of poisoning her husband. doesn't sound like it would be very high on the thing that people would want to do. No, you wouldn't, ju- you wouldn't jump in your coach to go off to uh, have that meeting, maybe. No, you'd probably be thinking about, you know, whether you could run off to a beach somewhere and just forget the whole thing. Absolutely. Go off to the country for a week. Right, right, or a year. Yeah. So, uh, fast forward three years. Uh, we're still in Paris, but it's now 1679, and the main story has just begun. Uh, Chapter one opens with another dramatic line delivered as dialogue, uh, never underestimate the value of a public execution. And I fixated on this line because it's hard to imagine a clearer difference in values between this statement and the views of contemporary Western society. So who is speaking and, and what does he have in mind with this statement? So that, that's Nicholas Lorraine speaking. And um, what I was wanting to get over there is, is that he, at the beginning of the novel, is a stickler for justice and for process. And this is our process and this is what we do. And um, we're having an investigation and the people need to learn from it. And, you know, they did use execution as a, as a tool to control the populace. This, this is where, you know, you will end up if you do these things. Yes, your hand will get chopped off if you steal something. Yes, you will be hung if, if you're found guilty by the court. So that is how it was. And, and I, you know, hope that set that out clearly. Uh, yes, you do. I mean, you do a really good job with it. It's it's sometimes hard to read because it's so cruel, um, but it is exactly how it was done. Um, 
at that time. And that, that's what justice was. A large part of it was supposed to be deterrent. Um, so tell us a little bit about those sentenced, uh, because their crime gets to the heart of your plot. Um, of what crimes are they accused? So there, there are three people in that in that scene in the Place de Grave. And, and um, the first, um, Madame Ferry, has admitted to poisoning her husband. So she is hanged um, as an admitted murderess. And then there is uh, the son of the other person who is also hanged because he has prepared the poison that has killed Monsieur Ferry. And then the third person, the person who is burned at the stake, is uh, Martine Boss. Her real name was Marie Boss, but there were too many Maries in my novel, so she became called Martine. But she was a colleague of Catherine, a Catherine Lavoison that we've talked about, and her trade was to obtain poison and advise women on how to get rid of their husbands. And she um, she had another colleague, she'd fallen out with Lavoisin and her and her other colleague were having dinner one night with some people and uh, Martine had a bit too much to drink and began boasting about how rich she was going to be because she had this trade in helping women get rid of their husbands. And they, they called them inheritance powders, although they also, there were liquids, there were poisoned enemas, you name it. And the, the person that she bragged to informed on her. And when she was arrested, she then spilled her guts, basically, and gave Lorraine and his assistant huge names, information that spawned the whole thing. And that, so we're beginning with, with the first person who's implicated in this being executed, and then the, the ramifications of what she says before she dies is what plays out next. Oh, I see. So she's actually the source of the accusations that became the affair of the poisons. Yeah, she was the, the main source. And the, and the other person, her colleague, actually died while she was being tortured. So she was supposed to be burned at the stake, but she had died, which, which didn't thrill my, my character, Lorraine. He would rather have had two people to show the populace, but he only had one. It was very nice, very lovely time. Yes, I wonder, I mean, this is slightly different from the question I asked you before. Was it difficult for you as a writer to put yourself into that mindset? I think, um, surprisingly not, I would have to say. I mean, I think when you have done the research, you believe how it was. I mean, I wouldn't say I, I pictured the grisly bits too graphically, but... Um, that is how it was. You know, there was no TV. People are voyeuristic. People are, you know, drawn to the macabre even now. And although we might have 21st century sensibilities, I don't think it's too much of a jump to believe that people would go and see these things. And people saw death, you know, much more up close and in their own home with their children dying and people's life expectancy being much shorter. You know, the, the world was a harsher, more violently present place. So now people watch TV shows about people, you know, killing people and criminal minds or, or what have you. So it, it's not actually that much of a leap, I don't think, to imagine this this kind of world. No, I mean, that's a good point. And in fact, some of these things do go on in, in the present world as well. I mean, I was making a specific Absolutely. contrast between you know, the North America, Europe, but it does go on in other places even now. Um, it does, you know, people, yeah. Yeah. people are cruel. 
Unfortunately, yes. So although we've been talking for a while, we're actually only a very short distance into the book. One of the things that, for, as an interviewer, I loved about this book was that everything is laid out in the beginning. And so without going into the plot to the point where you're giving away stuff, although with, a his, you know, with something that's as historically based as this, it's not as big of an issue as it, it is with plots that are more made up. Um, we can get to a lot of the major themes and, and incidents. And in fact, we have not met who is the person who is, to my mind, at least one of the major characters. La Voisin is obviously one, but another one is uh, Atanaïs, uh, who is better known as the Marquise de Montespan or uh, Madame de Montespan. And she shows up in chapter two. So uh, she's on her way to visit the king and... Uh, let's assume that many of our listeners have heard the name without really knowing who she is. Um, could you give us a, a sort of quick introduction into her and her place? I mean, it doesn't have to be quick, but an introduction to her place. <laughs> <laughs> sure. I mean, she and she is, you know, a major character, and she was a major motivation in in my pursuing the story. So. Um, I find her name really hard to pronounce. I'm not sure that I should admit that. <laughs> <laughs> the author of the novel, but I think you said it better than I do. So Athenis um, was a noblewoman. She was born in 1640. She was born to one of the um, most high-ranking French families. They even considered themselves more noble than the king's line at the time. Um, so she was brought up um, to be a courtly lady. She was educated. She was highly intelligent. She was very beautiful. She was, is reported to have been very witty and clever and bright and charismatic. And she went to court when she was around 20. She uh, took up a position within, inside the Queen's household and did her duties and waited to get married. Um, and her family didn't actually provide anyone of her to marry until she was 22, 23, which was quite late. And when they did, the person that she was supposed to be marrying um, got embroiled in a, in a duel where someone died and had to flee the country. So this beautiful, talented, witty girl, uh, young woman, didn't have anyone to marry. And she was, I think it's fair to say, pretty furious about this situation because that's what she needed to move on. And, and she was ambitious and she wanted to do well. And so she forced her family to let her marry the Marquis de Montespan, who was not, in fact, the most suitable match for her. He, they did get married, but he turned out to be a gambler. He um, had connections which didn't help her at court. They did not get on. Um, they had a, a fractious marriage. They did have two children. But it became clear that he was never going to support the lifestyle that she wanted to have and that there were other people at court who were doing better than she was, and that irked her. So whether because of that or because she fell in love with him or he fell in love with her, but um, in the when she was in her late 20s, mid to late 20s, she became the lover of Louis XIV. And he had had a previous main mistress called Louise de la Vallier, who, in fact, Athenaeus was friends with, but she supplanted her and for the next 10 years was the maitres en titre in the court. She led the court. She um, led the fashion. She led the style. She worked with Louis on their 
buildings and the, all the kind of glorious Baroque stuff that was happening at Versailles. And she had seven children with the king. And they, they were, in many ways, a married couple. There's a, there's a book about her called The Real Queen of France because she was, to practical senses, the queen, although there was a queen. But she was his chief mistress and, you know, it seemed like the great romance of the century. Yes, if anyone's interested, you can find pictures of her on the internet, and she was indeed quite beautiful, as one would expect, uh, of the mistress of the most powerful man in France. Yeah. um, But in 1679, when we're meeting her, things are actually not going too well for her. Why is that? Yes, by 1679, um, Athenaeus was then nearly 40 years old, um, and Louis was also 40, and she, as I said, you know, she's had seven children with him, nine altogether born. And she perhaps wasn't as quite as beautiful as she had been or as slim as she had been. And Louis had a, a famously roving eye. He had not been faithful to her during that 10 or 12 year period. But now in 1679, uh, a young girl arrived at court called Angelique de Pontage. And she was young and she was beautiful. And Louis clearly fell for her. So at this point where the book starts for Athenaeus, she is struggling to cope with the fact that she has been supplanted and working out, firstly, if that's forever and if that, that's it for her role as the king's mistress. And then if, if that is it, what that means for her and what life will look like for her going forward. And one of the things that she's struggling with is that she has an older sister called Gabrielle, and Gabrielle doesn't seem to be taking it very well that her sister may not be able to hold her position. Um, Their relationship is both supportive and conflicted at the same time as relationships between sisters tend to be. Um, So talk to us about them, what they mean to each other, what each of them wants, how they get along, that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, what what interests me there is is that it is true that Athenaeus' relationship with the king had huge benefits for her family. Um, there was huge preferment offered through the access that she had to the king, um, posts for her brother, her, for her sister's husband, um, for her father. So it really became very integral to the family and the family's status that Athenaeus was Louis' principal mistress. Um her sister was older than her. And the, I mean, there's, this is not factual. This is, you know, based on my imagination. But what I, what I kind of thought was, well, would, would the family push her in this? Would the family, you know, the family have a vested interest in this relationship going on? Um, would they push her to maintain it? And then, you know, what have they done in the past to push her to have this relationship? Um there are obviously, you know, there, there are a lot of factions in court. There's a lot of bitching. There's a, you know, Louis had set up a situation where he played his courtiers off against each other. So your family and your allies were important, but they might also want to push you in certain directions and they might feel competitive. There, there was a, another family, the Mancini sisters, who were at the court and Marie Mancini had had a, a love affair with Louis when she was young and then her one of her sisters had also had a relationship with him. And, you know, so there was obviously competition within families as well as support for each other. And that was really what I was playing out between, between the two there. 
Ah, yes. Okay. That's very interesting. So as you mentioned, Athenais uh, has a friendly relationship with her predecessor, Louise de la Vallière. And even with a young woman who seems to be on uh, track to replace her, uh, Louis' new favorite, Angelique de Fontange. And you mentioned that that's historically attested, but um, it also makes her, I think, a very sympathetic character. How do you dis- uh, how do you develop that as part of her character? Well, I, both of those things did come out of snippets. And that, you know, I think it goes back to what we were saying earlier about this is the fun part. So I did read a snippet in one book, which there wasn't any reference for, but a snippet that said that, Athenaeus twice went to visit Louise in her convent. And I thought, how interesting, and what would they talk about? And how did they feel about each other? And then with Angelique, there's there's a snippet somewhere else that says that she did her hair before a ball, I think in in, in 1680. And, you know, that's a, that's a very friendly and intimate kind of thing to do. And uh, I did have sympathy for Athenaeus having, you know, I guess the age I was and being a mother and things like that. So it it was important to me to show her as someone who did get on with women and um, to have that facet in her character. But, you know, when you just have a snippet, it's it's fun to build that relationship and think about, well, how would they get on and to what extent would they get on and what lies between them? So I I think I'm proud of those. I enjoy those aspects of the book. Yes, um, and in some ways she's more sympathetic than Gabrielle because Gabrielle is very focused on, I mean, I suppose to some extent she's doing it out of sympathy for her sister losing her position, but you also get the impression that, that as you mentioned, that she has a lot at stake here and so she's really pushing, her ambition seems to be almost greater than her sister's. Yeah, but, and then I guess that contrast works then in, in Athenaeus's favor, in, in her favour. Right, exactly. And in fact, it's kind of interesting. In some ways, she gets along better, Athenais, that is, um, with her predecessor, with the other women who might be considered rivals than she does with some of her own children. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, she had a fraught relationship with her children. That is, um, there, I can't remember which one off the top of my head, but there's certainly at least one of her daughters she wasn't invited to the wedding of um, when when she did eventually move out of Versailles, I think I mentioned it in the end of the historical afterward, her son took her rooms and uh, allegedly threw her furniture out of the window Wow! because he was so keen to get rid of her. And uh, the Duc de Maine, her her oldest son with Louis, had a very close relationship with Madame de Maintenon, who became Louis's wife. So, you know, it's, it's difficult to parse that. You have to think about that and why would that be and how, but how much time and attention could she give him? How give her children? Um, she they were established. The the first group of children with Louis they were established in a house in Paris with Madame de Maintenon as their governess. And from my reading, Athenaeus would you know rush in with gifts and with monkeys and you know spoiling things, but then disappear off back to Louis. And and you know Louis was not a man to come second. So, you know, anyone who's had children who has a relationship knows, you know, once you've got children, you know, things change. And it was very much the, um, oh, how should I put this, the standard at the time in aristocratic families. I mean, mothers didn't really 
spend the kind of hands-on time with their children that we do now. They were always turned over to nurses and governesses and tutors and so on. That's right. I mean, and there is evidence um, that I think uh, the the first child, you know, several of them died. They weren't all alive even by the time of this book. And there and there is evidence that she, you know, she grieved greatly over that. So she was an, an engaged and, and loving person, but she perhaps wasn't a very hands-on mother because of the nature of of the times and of her position at the court and her relationship with Louis. So I'm not sure how much you want to reveal about your plot, but I think that we should note that the two lines that we've been discussing, La Voisin and Montespan, do connect quite early in the novel. Um, The story is intertwined through the investigation that La Reynie is conducting into the affair of the poisons, uh, which widens steadily, as you mentioned, and sweeps up various aristocrats. Um, and so all of the characters we've been discussing so far, except for uh, Montespan's children, are caught up in this scandal to varying degrees. And it gives a really uh, rich contrast because, you know, when we think of 17th century France, we tend to think of Versailles. And at least I do. Um, but this whole underground world that La Voisin inhabits exists alongside um, of Versailles. And it's like a society of extremes. And there's um, what comes out in your book is this sort of upstairs, downstairs view of all of 17th century Paris. Um, If by upstairs, we mean the Royal court and by downstairs, we mean these (laughs) people who are sort of in the dregs. So um, what kind of research did you have to do to create such a multi-layered portrayal of the city? Because it's not always so easy to get at lower-class society in the past. No, and and I think if it hadn't been for the event of the affair of the poisons, it would have been difficult. But there there are actually a, a couple of academic, quite academic books about that Paris underworld that really detailed about the kind of people that there were, the kind of um, herbs that they used, the, you know, I think I said the poison enema earlier, you know, there was a a battery of people involved in the trade and it's been quite well researched. So it felt, it felt like two, it is a kind of dual narrative. There are two worlds and the, the tension that all of this is going on underneath this glamorous, apparently lovely, lifestyle was was what I was really focusing on um but there were these priests there were you know the priests in the beginning there were you know a dozen priests going around creating black masses there were people um chopping up pigeons there were people telling fortunes there were people selling freckle creams but at the same time selling aphrodisiacs and it was it was fascinating to to find out about that and those characters. And there's a couple of books, The Affair of the Poison books by Anne Somerset and a, a book by an American academic called Lynn, uh, somebody whose surname escapes me, but, you know, huge detail and, and fun to read about, fun to learn about. And I ask this question a lot because I'm always fascinated on how uh, different novelists answer it. Uh, how do you decide what facts have to be in the story and what has to be left out? Well, you remember I said I had a first draft before I went to Canada? I think in the first draft, everything was in. Everything. Everybody, everything that was said, um, 
and it was it was too much. The real events were too much. So, uh, for instance, when you get to the part of the book where people are making accusations against Madame de Montespan, there were a larger number of people making those accusations than I have in the book. So um, several real figures were kind of amalgamated into one character. Um, there were strands, or there were people that were accused of things that I just left mm-hmm. out. Um, so there, there was a, a big uh, investigation of of the of Racine, the poet, um, who was supposed to have murdered his lover. Well, that just couldn't fit in the, the book because it wasn't about Madame de Montespan uh, and things like that. So it's, it's finding it's finding what the story is that you want to tell, I think, and then letting go of all the other stuff that's true but doesn't necessarily impact upon that key story and it's it's i find it a very difficult job i have to say it took me you know draft upon draft to to get the right amount of information in there and not too much information and and make it boring because you want you know you want people to be engaged in the story that's what i like reading is the story that i want to turn the pages i want to know the answer and um holding on to that while giving enough information is certainly tricky. Well, I think you did a lovely job. And even if it took draft after draft, I think the end results are great. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> That's also a very nice way to put it, to just hold on to the story and let everything else go. It's, it's letting go, I think, that's so hard because, you know, you've done all it this work, right? And you've done all this reading and and it's hard to say no. People don't really need to know that. No, it is hard. And, and I learned, that's where I would say I learned a lot at, at the course in Canada and just through experience, really hard, hard experience. So as my listeners know, I'm a mad Alan Rickman fan. Um, earlier this year, I happened to watch A Little Chaos, which I think is his last film. Uh, he directed it and he played Louis Fourteenth, And so... The film features the early days of the move to Versailles and particularly the um, setting up of the famous Versailles Gardens and Kate Winslet appears as a designer of some of the gardens. So it must be set at around the same time as your novel because um, Madame de Montespan is there and she's on her way down. Uh, And in the movie, because it's a movie, Kate Winslet defends her with this lovely garden metaphor. But I kept thinking about the film uh, while I was reading the novel, even though they're, you know, they're completely different stories. They're quite distinct. And I don't want to say that they were, you know, one influenced the other in any way. But I wondered if you'd seen the film and if so, what you thought of it as a portrayal of Louis and his court. Um, I have seen it. I, I do love Alan Rickman. I was really sad when he died earlier this year. I think Me he's a great, a great actor. Mm-hmm. I love every film he's in, whether it's Die Hard or or this one, or Truly Madly Deeply or Harry Potter. You know, I think he was a really a fabulous actor with a wonderful voice. Um, so I, I enjoyed the film. I enjoyed. What I like about things like that is, you know, whether or not you love that particular story, the the film, the cinematography of it, the the beauty of it all, you know, I thought that was wonderful and I just really enjoyed watching it. I liked um, I liked the fact that Jennifer mm. L played Madame de Montespan because she was um, Lizzie Bennet in my favourite Pride and Prejudice adaptation ever. Absolutely. So, With Colin Firth, yes. <laughs> that's right. 
just you know just the best TV ever to come out of the BBC probably. Um, so I, I just enjoyed it. I thought it was fun. You know, I, th- I think there's room for lots of historical fiction, and you know that's the kind of story that's fictional set in a real setting, whereas mine is is a true story attempting to be set in the in the in the setting. So it was very different, but I enjoyed the style of it greatly, and it's a good movie. So you thought that it was visually accurate. I think so. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not. I didn't see anything where I thought, "Ooh, you know, no, that can't be." So, yeah, because I think that's but, one of I'm the not. wonderful things about film is that, you know, especially if it's done responsibly or, or television. You know, the BBC does these fantastic costumes, and and you really get an image of of what the place looked like and what people looked like, how they dressed, all of that kind of thing. Yeah, and some of those things are hard as a novelist to to find the sources for and and um you know sometimes you know i might have watched i watched that film well after i'd written all of the book you know if not most of it and done the research on the clothes but how nice it would have been to have just sat down and thought oh yes there's a dress and i could describe it like that that would be handy so right well you can get sources from many places well, the internet is a wonderful resource for that. I mean, even all of the pictures that you can't use in any way because they're copyright protected or whatever. I mean, I, I spend one of my favorite ways of procrastinating in the early stages of a novel is to search Google for pictures of everything that I'm thinking about, including. Uh, heard you. Okay. <laughs> yes, the clothes and the shoes and the, the things... Um, you know, things people put in their houses and uh, paintings and all of this kind of thing. That's right. But we're also at yeah. a real disadvantage as a novelist. I, I I think about this every time I watch a film. You know, it's I'm trying to remember what the, the most recent one I watched. Oh, I think it was actually, it was, um, I was rewatching Dancers with Mikhail Baryshnikov doing Giselle. And um, you realize the the richness of expression that actors bring you know, mm-hmm. he's he's a performer more than an actor. But I mean, just watching people on a camera, and you can see if you say it, if you're writing it out, you have to be really careful to avoid cliches because you can't keep saying the same, describing the same gesture over and over. But you know, even with something yeah. simple like a smile, I mean, there's so many gradations that people instinctively recognize, and yet to put it on the page is very difficult to make it interesting it on is. the page. I, th- I think when I'm writing a draft, I'll quite often overwrite people's gestures and facial expressions. And then I find myself having to take them out because it's too much. And, and you have to, that's when you have to look at your dialogue and you have to get your dialogue to have an edge that shows what people are thinking so that you're not just telling people how it was. And, and it's, it's hard. It's tricky. It is tricky. I mean, I do that in a first draft. I put in all this stuff. I mean, I don't think about cliches. I just because I'm using it as a marker so that when I go back to it, I don't just say, you know, he clenched his teeth or something 15 times. (laughs) But in the first draft, I will put that in because then I can go back and say, okay, so what else can we do that would show that that's that he's angry? You know, that kind of thing. That's right. You You can't just keep frowning again and again. Or raising eyebrows, I have to control. I have to control my eyebrow tendency. I seem to have too too many of those. Oh, me too. Me too. Raised eyebrows are always a, a thing. So, what would you like <laughs> readers to take away from Charlatan? I think that it's a that it's a a good story. I think um, 
that it's interesting because it's true. I think that um, people, you know, the the way that people think and how they act and how they get in or out of situations. I think um, the injustices that go on in it are were important to me. Um, you know, the cover there's a cover up, um, so that was, you know, it was important to me that that came out. Um, and I think it was most historical fiction. The 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 thing is that people, you know, the world is different. The times are different. Some of people's morals or religious positions and things are different. But people are people, and you can learn from how they behave, and you can see um, things that you recognise in how they behave and and have empathy or or dislike of them, and and um, that that's valuable to consider other experiences other than your own. I mean, that that's what I think that I read books for. I don't read books about 40-something women that live in, you know, the suburbs of Philadelphia with three children. I read books about people that live in Nigeria or people that um, are reading the Underground Railroad at the moment, you know, so black slavery or um, or a thriller about someone being murdered on a Hebridean island. I think that's what I'm going to read next. So um, fiction can um, give you other worlds to explore. And on that note, are you working on another novel yourself? I am. I'm working on a novel set in the same, practically the same year, the same couple of years, but in England and in London. And at that time, there was a a chap called Titus Oates who declared that uh, Catholics were Mm. about to assassinate Charles II and overthrow the monarchy and make England a Catholic country again. And it was all made up. So I am writing a novel about that. And there's a murder story at the heart of it and a, and a couple who are just married and he becomes very involved in politics and she is finding her way and not necessarily agreeing with him. And, and so it's how their marriage plays out against the kind of difficult time of terror plots and, and anxiety, which is you know has some relevance to today, I think. So that's what I'm working on. <laughs> well, great. And since you're so close, you'll let me know and we can come and... Talk to you again when it comes out soon. Absolutely, yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. That was fun. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I am C.P. Leslie, and today I've been speaking with Kate Braithwaite about her new novel, Charlatan. You can find out more about her at www.kate-braithwaite.com. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books Fistfic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can also find out more about me, my website, and my books at blog.cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about new books in historical fiction.